Welcome to Zion Fellowship's Bible Wire. In these podcasts, we discuss what the Bible says, line upon line and precept upon precept. Today, George Reuter, that's me, will be continuing our study on the book of Acts. Settle in for the next few minutes and learn more about who God is and how he loves. Welcome to episode 5 of the Book of Acts. Uh, If you're subtitling, this is Peter's proclamation. Uh, We're going to finish the big long thing that Peter's been saying to the people gathered before him in Acts chapter 2. You'll have to check out previous episodes to figure out what sets up what we're about to hear. I'm going to read verses 25 to 41 out of Acts chapter 2. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's talk about what the resurrection of Jesus means. In this section, Peter moves on to explain why we can be confident that Jesus is raised from the dead. He begins by appealing to Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, which he quotes to establish that the resurrection was predicted by David. Uh, This is what happened early on. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. And then focusing on verse 27, which is verse 10 of the psalm, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
Peter quotes David saying that he would not go to Hades and that his body would not undergo decay. David claims this promise. But David is the Lord's anointed, and surely Jesus is the Lord's anointed, and so Peter is making that connection. And in fact, Peter recognizes in the verses that follow, verses 29 to 31, that it couldn't have been David talking about himself because David is very dead. So if David is claiming the promise but David is very dead, then the promise cannot be for him. Instead, David was pointing to the Lord's anointed, who is Jesus. Quoting Tom Constable, quote, Peter did not say that Jesus now sits on David's throne, verse 30, which is what some interpreters affirm. He said that David prophesied that God had sworn to seat a descendant of David on David's throne. Jesus now sits on a throne in heaven, but he has yet to sit on David's throne, which is a throne on earth. He will sit on David's throne when he returns to the earth to reign as Messiah. God resurrected Christ so that one day he could sit on David's throne, end quote. Uh, Constable's talking about this. David keeps talking about the Lord's anointed, and there's a throne, and David sat on the throne, but Jesus will sit on the throne. So there's this intermingling of what David did and how he did it with what Jesus did and is doing and will do, and how Jesus did and is doing and will do it. So David claims a promise about the Lord's anointed not undergoing decay, but David underwent decay, so it has to be Jesus to whom that is referring. And similarly, we have talk about David's throne, but David is not sitting on David's throne, nor will he ever again. It's the Lord's anointed who will sit on David's throne at some point in the future. So it's a bit of a mess to sort through prophetically, and also it makes a ton of sense. And that's what Peter is saying to the people gathered. Hey, this is a prophetic promise that David is claiming, but it can't be for him. So who is it about? It has to be about the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed is Jesus. Peter adds to this story the fact that the 12 were witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Uh, witnesses did carry a lot of weight in that culture, as they should today. Um, everything was established on the testimony of a couple of eyewitnesses. So adding to the fact that there was this prophetic uh, ver uh, this prophetic word given the, that there were witnesses of a resurrected Jesus that adds credence to what they're hearing. And so, because Jesus has risen from the dead, it was prophetically said, and there are witnesses to it, the Holy Spirit can be given. Peter argues that Jesus is the one who gave the Holy Spirit as evidenced by everything the listeners themselves were witnessing. Quoting Ben Witherington, quote, Throughout Acts, 
The presence of the Spirit is seen as the distinguishing mark of Christianity. It is what makes a person a Christian, end quote. I would argue that that has not stopped being true. The presence of the Spirit is the distinguishing mark of Christianity. If you want to know if someone is a believer, is there evidence of the presence of the Spirit with them? That's an interesting thing to consider. What does that look like? There are other scriptures that will speak to that. I'll ask you to search them out because that's part of our responsibility as believers. But throughout Acts, the presence of the Spirit is the distinguishing mark of Christianity. Let's talk for a little bit about what Peter exhorts. Because here, Peter goes for the jugular. Uh, he declares that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. Peter wanted his hearers to know that they were responsible for Jesus' death and that God really, really undid that death. So you'll remember Jesus died a criminal's death. He died the most ignominious of deaths. And God, in his justice, really, really turned that around, raised him from the dead, declared that he was righteous, all of it. So Peter drives home this point. God made him both Lord, one to be followed, and Christ, the Messiah who was to save us from our sins. And the hearers are cut to the quick, and they wonder what they should do, and they ask what they should do. And gosh, is that a reasonable question? When we present the gospel to someone, when we present the truth about who Jesus is, and it hits at the heart, people are going to ask what they should do. And Peter's answer is a good one. Peter tells them to repent and be baptized. The Greek word for repent is metanoia, and it comes from two Greek words, meta meaning change and noos meaning mind. Repent means to change your mind. The people who sent Jesus to the cross needed to change how they thought about him. Now, when we talk in modern terms about repent, we mean change the way you're living, or put your sin aside. And yes, you should change the way you're living. And yes, you should put your sin aside. But that's not what Peter asks them to do. That's not the command he gives to them. He tells them to change their mind about who Jesus is. This is not the sort of repentance that most Christians talk about. Most Christians just want people to live more moral lives. And that is not Peter's command here. Peter calls the Jews to think differently about Jesus than they did before. Quoting Charles Ryrie, quote, the context of repentance which brings eternal life and that which Peter preached on the day of Pentecost is a change of mind about Jesus Christ. Whereas the people who heard him on that day formerly thought of him as mere man, they were asked to accept him as Lord, deity, and Christ, promised Messiah. To do this 
would bring salvation, end quote. I mean, what's the truth of the gospel? If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We are asked to think differently about Jesus than we did before. And the difference here is noteworthy. Peter is not calling the Jews to live better or stop sinning or be holy. Peter is calling the Jews to think differently. When we call people to repentance, the primary thing for us to focus on is how they think about Jesus. I'm going to quote Billy Graham. Quote, First, realize that you are a sinner in God's eyes. Second, realize that God loves you and sent his son to die for you. Third, repent of your sins. Repentances comes from a Greek word meaning a change of mind. It means that I admit I am a sinner and that I feel sorry for the fact that I have sinned. To this point, I agree with him, the quotation here. But repentance also means I actually turn my back on my sins. I reject them and determine by God's grace to live as he wants me to live. Repentance involves a willingness to leave sin behind and turn my life over to Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. Fourth, come by faith and trust to Christ. End quote. And it should be noted that the action taken by a few thousand people was to be baptized. The baptisms signified that people had changed their minds about Jesus. Now, do people need to be baptized in order to be saved? That's ah, a question that's, it's a, it's a distinction without a difference. Do people need to be baptized as a step of obedience in faith? Sure they do. Does the baptism save them? No, it doesn't. Should we baptize people? Yes, we should. Uh, and we will at Zion Fellowship on Easter Sunday. Uh, if you're in the area and you have not yet been baptized in water, that's a complete immersion in water as an act of obedience to God, then you are welcome to contact our church and ask to be baptized. We'd be glad to have you. Um, that's the idea here at the end of Peter's talk, at the end of Peter's first sermon, and with a powerful, uh, a powerful proclamation of the gospel and a powerful 3,000 people coming to faith being baptized. Like, that's ridiculously good news for the early church. Uh, that's a whole lot of small groups starting up, I'd have to imagine. And we'll talk in our next episode about the end of Acts chapter 2 and how the early church functioned together as community. That's coming up next. We have reached the end of today's Bible Wire podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or if you'd like more resources related to this podcast, you can find us online at www.zionfellowship.net. We're also available on social media. Look for Zion Fellowship. Thank you for joining us today on Bible Wire.